Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in Biblical Studies. I'm Garrett Brown, the host of the channel. Today, I'm talking with John H. Walton about his book, The Lost World of Adam and Eve, published by IVP Academic. John Walton is a professor of Old Testament at Wheaton College in Illinois and an editor and writer of Old Testament comparative studies and commentaries. Throughout his career, Walton has focused his attention on comparing the culture and literature of the Bible with the ancient Near East. He has published dozens of books, articles, and translation, both as writer and editor. His original studies include Genesis 1 as Ancient Cosmology, The Lost World of Genesis 1, Ancient Cosmology and the Origins Debate, and Ancient Near Eastern Thought and the Old Testament. He has also written individual commentaries on Genesis, Job, and Jonah. On today's program, Walton discusses the challenges of interpreting the first few chapters of Genesis, how modern science does and does not influence that interpretation, and whether the conclusions of common descent and material continuity prompted by modern science are compatible with a faithful interpretation of the Bible. I hope you enjoyed today's program. John Walton, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Great. Well, I wonder if you could begin by telling us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Uh, I'm Professor of Old Testament at Wheaton College. I've been there for 14 years. Uh, Before that, I was at Moody Bible Institute for 20 years. I did my doctorate work at Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati, and that was in the area of Old Testament and Ancient Near East. Um, My Master's degree was at Wheaton College in Old Testament, uh, but my undergraduate degree was in economics and accounting at Muhlenberg College. At that point, I didn't quite know what I wanted to do yet, and so I, I had that major um, and completed that major, but then uh, took a turn and went toward Old Testament. And what, what led you to make that decision? Uh, Well, I'd always liked the Old Testament. I don't quite know why. I was raised in a a home where the Bible was taught, in a church where we learned Scripture. So I knew the Bible very well, even as a youngster, and I always liked the Old Testament. But I had never thought that uh, about there being a uh, career path connected to that. Uh, Being a pastor or a missionary didn't necessarily have that much to do with the Old Testament. And so I just didn't know of other options. And it wasn't until I was near the end of my college career, that it suddenly occurred to me that somebody's out there teaching Old Testament and that that would be something that I would really, really enjoy. So I made the change really rather abruptly and um, and then began my Old Testament work. And a lot of your work has uh, focused on uh, comparisons with other ancient Near Eastern literature. What drew you to that in particular? Uh, I saw early on how valuable the ancient Near Eastern backgrounds could be for understanding the Bible. Uh, And so I saw that as an interpretive tool, just like Hebrew language or literary studies or history uh, can be interpretive tools. And I saw it as a tool that was being underused and therefore not giving its full uh, benefit uh, to students of the Bible. So that made me real interested in it. And, of course, the program that I was in in Cincinnati uh, gave me excellent preparation for that in 
teaching me not only the history, but the literature and the culture of the ancient world. I studied the languages of the ancient world. And so it was a program very well suited to prepare me for that kind of study. And so what kinds of texts are we talking about? Uh, there's okay. uh, Gilgamesh. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Uh, Gilgamesh is one of the best known pieces of Akkadian literature. Akkadian is the language uh, that both the Babylonians and the Assyrians spoke. Um, and there are dialects of it. But Akkadian is the main one that we study, um, largely because of a vast majority of our texts are Akkadian. We have over a million Akkadian texts. And wow. so Gilgamesh is one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I, I won't name the rest of them, but, but they're, they're uh, over a million cuneiform texts. Now, uh, you know, there's also Hittite and Ugaritic. Uh, Ugaritic is probably the closest to Old Testament language and literature, but we only have about 14, 1500 Ugaritic texts. And so uh, Akkadian uh, has a lot more impact in comparative studies. Okay. Um, well, we'll talk a little bit more about that as we get into your book. Um, but before we get into your book, I, I wonder if you might explain for those who are not intimately familiar with the uh, the Genesis text or the debate around uh, you know the primeval narrative, the first eleven chapters of Genesis. You know, why have these chapters attracted so much attention? Given you know the number of other passages in the Bible about God's creative power. And simply the panoramic sweep of the Bible, um, it seems as if, in some ways, the, the first few chapters get this inordinate amount of attention. Why is that so? And, and, and uh, why do we continue to uh, focus on them so uh, intensely? I think largely because uh, um, in the last several hundred years, our culture has become very scientifically oriented. And therefore, we want to understand uh, our world in a scientific point of view. I mean, this comes from the Enlightenment and the post-Enlightenment period that we're in, that we're very interested in understanding the world around us, particularly with regard to origins. Uh, and so that makes Genesis 1 through 3 very intriguing to us, because there we feel that we're going to find the biblical account of origins, and so people want to try to put together what they know of science and what they learn from the Bible. But of course, that creates its own problem, because how do you make that work? Lots of interpreters have felt comfortable with the idea that, well, if this is God's word, it's going to have scientific truth embedded in it, and therefore we should try to take what we know to be true from science and find that, even if we have to kind of read between the lines and things like that, uh, find that in the biblical text. And so this idea that we're trying to read Genesis chapters scientifically, they don't really try to do that with Psalm 104 or with uh, Job 38 or things of that sort. They know those are poetry. But with Genesis, they think that, that if God's word is going to be true and things about science are true, then God's word needs to be saying what science is saying. And that's what's drawn a lot of interest to these chapters. Of course, as, as people will see uh, as they read my book, I try to suggest that that's not the right way to approach the biblical text, uh, that we can't approach it as if it's doing modern science. 
we have to read it as an ancient text, and the author's intentions are what are important to us as we try to understand the message of these chapters. So that sets up a a, a little bit of a difference in hermeneutics, uh, how we interpret the Bible, uh, because some people want to read science into it, and I'm suggesting that that is only going to distort the Bible because our key to understanding God's purpose is to understand the human author's purpose, and the author is not talking science. Mm-hmm. Okay, and one of the ways one of the ways that you actually establish um, uh, some of the authorial intention is by making reference to uh, the comparative literature of the period and to show not only commonality but also distinctiveness. Can you talk a little bit about how, how do you know when it applies and when it doesn't apply? I mean, or um, uh, how how do you uh, go through that sorting process to, um, um, especially when it comes to the Bible? But uh, but I think a lot of people want are are struggling with the sense of uh, well, how much information that's external to the text to actually um, to consult. Mm-hmm. The Bible, in my opinion, um, is is unique. It's God's word. It's revelation. It has authority. It's inspired. All of those things. That's what I believe about the Bible. And, of course, none of the other literature from the ancient world is any of those things. Uh, And so some people get a little nervous because if we're bringing other literature that's not God's word into God's word, then that's somehow corrupting or, or distorting God's word. And, of course, that's not what I'm doing at all. Uh, I'm working on the understanding that the Old Testament is written by Israelites for Israelites, inspired by God, yes, but by Israelites for Israelites, and that, therefore, it was understandable to the author and to the audience. Now, there are lots of things that are embedded in communication that are culturally connected. What's going to happen if we don't know the ancient world we can easily start to assume that they think the same way we do. And there's where there's a problem, because when we start bringing in our worldview, our presuppositions, our understandings of of the world around us uh, into the text, we are imposing something foreign on it. When I talk about doing comparative studies, one of the main things that comparative studies is going to help me do is to start to spot those ways in which the ancient world people thought differently than we do. And that's so that I can prevent myself or other modern interpreters from bringing in things that are are not there in the biblical text. Um, so uh, that's something that's important for us to understand. Um, you know, culture is, is deeply embedded in our communication. I was talking with a friend in Australia a week or two ago, and we noticed the the use of the term of the idea um, that the further south you go, the warmer it gets. Of course, that's not true in Australia. That's that's a northern hemisphere perspective. But in the northern hemisphere, we don't think anything about it. We just take that as an assumption. And and down down under. That's not true at all. The further north you get, the warmer it gets. Furthermore, a comment like that betrays a knowledge of hemispheres. 
It betrays a knowledge of the equator. It betrays a knowledge about the shape of the world and how the world works in the solar system. All kinds of things that are built in, in a very casual statement. And those kinds of things are all through the Bible. We have to understand what they mean. Um, we have to see that culture. For instance, when we think about the moon, we think about a rock in space, uh, orbiting the earth, reflecting the light sun. We know its cycles. We know how far it is away. Uh, we know a lot about the moon. In the ancient world, how much of that did they know? None of it. In fact, there's not even any evidence that they knew that the moon was an object. In the Bible, they call it a light. In the rest of the ancient world, they call it a god. But none of them knew that it was actually a material object. There are some vast differences. Yes, yes. Actually, on page on page sixteen of your introduction, you do talk about this um, notion, this uh, interpretive framework of high context and low context uh, communication. And your example is is very helpful. And that was traffic. Can yeah. you talk a little bit about uh, how you use that example to to tease out this difference between high and low context communication, and yeah. and how does it apply to the Bible? Sure. Uh, basically, so listeners know what we're talking about, high context. Uh, yeah, exactly that. You have to explain to people what you mean. Um, so, uh, no, in the high context, people know what you mean. They're on the same wavelength as you. There's a lot you don't have to understand or explain to them because they know it. Low context, you have to explain a lot. There's a difference then between when I talk to my graduate students, high context, and when I talk to a room of sixth graders, low context. Okay. So in a, in a culture, there's a lot of common understanding and you don't have to explain things to audience of the same culture because they know what you're talking about. So to go back to my Australian friend for a moment, um, he said, I don't know what you Americans are talking about when you say fall semester. He says, because fall semester here, we don't even have something like fall semester and fall, you know, the seasons are different. And he says, I don't know what you're talking about. You know, so there's a high context where I can assume people know what I mean by fall semester and a low context where I can't assume that. Now, the example with traffic in Chicago, where I live, uh, we have traffic reports on the news station every 10 minutes uh, during the commuting hours, especially. And commuters listen carefully to find out if their normal way to work is going to be um, flowing easily or all jammed up. The reporters in the traffic reports use all kinds of specialized designations and references. So they'll talk about from the Nagel curve to the slip uh, or from the, from the cave to the junction. And they don't explain what those things are. They're assuming their main audience is high context and their audience who is commuting knows what those things are. And so they don't have to explain them. Uh, and so when I hear that, I, I know which areas are jammed. And when they give the times, since I know what the normal times are, I can tell whether that's fast or slow. Someone visiting the city, driving in and trying to find out whether they uh, the freeways are, are open or not, would listen to that traffic report and be absolutely baffled by it because they have no idea what the slip and the curve and the cave are, and they couldn't find them on a map, and they couldn't even Google them probably uh, to, to find out what they are. And so that's the difference between high context and low context. 
The importance for scripture is that the biblical communicators are writing in a high context situation. They assume their audience knows the same things they know and that they recognize terms and ideas, experiences and events, and they assume that in their communication. So in the Bible, we have the communication, a high context communication between author and his first audience, immediate audience. When we come to the Bible, we come as low-context readers. And to come as a low-context reader into a high-context communication always has its difficulties. We have to make adjustments because the author has not envisioned us or what we would know and not know and hasn't explained things for us. Mm -hmm. So we have to come into that communication and start to do some some research and spade work to try to put ourselves closer to the level of his intended audience. Right. This is why I talk about the idea that the Bible is written for us, but it's not written to us. Ah, interesting. Um, so uh, I wondered, uh, just as you were talking, whether or not the first 11 chapters of Genesis actually presents... Uh, more of a challenge in terms of high context communication than other parts of the Bible. Um, you know, you know I, I think you can maybe dive into the Psalms or even, uh, you know, the Gospels in the New Testament um, without as much uh, understanding of the context. Is that, uh, I, I guess the letters of Paul would have a whole context that's totally obscured to us because we don't know uh, or we only have intimations or clues about the uh the his knowledge of who he's writing to but is it true that that genesis actually presents some additional difficulties in that sense Uh, it does because in genesis um we have the uh the israelites addressing uh their deepest truths uh, when we address those things which are the deepest truths for us, um, we're going to automatically have these these assumptions that people can think along with you. Uh, they're in the same way of thinking. Um, and so in that way, it's not just kind of describing an event like we have in Samuel or Joshua or Judges. Uh, here they're trying to, to go deeply into... Uh, a deeper level of understanding. And the more it's going to do that, uh, the more we are in a difficult position as a low-context audience. Okay, well, let's start talking about your book. And I wanted to let our listeners know that uh, really this book is part two of uh, a two book, uh, of two books, and the first one being The Lost World of Genesis 1. And in the second book, you do have... Uh, a few chapters that overlap with uh, the previous work. Can you talk about Genesis 1 and what you tried to do in that earlier book and then how it um, influences the trajectory of the second? Yeah. Uh, in Genesis 1, there, there are two major points that I wanted to make, and both of them pertain to this idea that we've got an, an Israelite audience that are thinking about the world differently than we do. Um, most people think that a story, most people today think, well, a story of creation is a story of creation. It's about God making the material stuff of the universe. Well, that's already an assumption on our part. Does everybody think about creation that way? Uh, is that the story that everyone would choose to give? 
And what I found was in the ancient world, they were much less interested in the material world. They were more interested in the way it was ordered. And so I talked about the difference between a, um, an, a, or, a material origins account and an origins account that focused on the functional ordered cosmos. Uh, they're just different kinds of origin stories. There's no question about it that the Israelites believed that God made all the material stuff. But the important origin story for them was the origin story about God ordering it, because that's, that's what was important in the ancient world, and that's what was most important to them. The analogy that I use is uh, the difference between, um, in the places we live, if we talked about how our house was built, that's an origin story, or how our house became our home, that's an origin story. They're different origin stories. The house story is different from the home story. And as people who have been interested in science and the material world, we wade into Genesis 1 thinking that it's going to be a house story, how God built the cosmos materially. Um, and what I try to suggest is that, no, they're really not very interested in that. They're all about how God ordered it for people. And so it's a, a home story, not a house story. So that's the first important point I tried to make. It's about order. It's not so much about material. And I use many different kinds of um, evidences to support that. The second thing is uh, a better understanding of day seven, because I try to suggest that day seven is really what it's all about. And that when God rests, uh, if we're tuned into the ancient world, we know that if God is resting, it's talking about a temple because that's where God rests. And therefore, our knowledge of the ancient world and our knowledge of the Bible, because we can see this through the Bible as well, demonstrate to us that uh, we're talking about God preparing a place where he is going to dwell and be in relationship with his people. And that gives a lot different understanding of what Genesis 1 is getting at. Uh, it's trying to get at this idea of the cosmos becoming sacred space and God ordering it as sacred space where he will dwell and where it's functioning on our behalf as he is in relationship with us. Okay. You know, uh, with reference to days one through six, can you give an example of one of those days where um, the distinction between house and home or material creation versus function, creation of function, uh, operates just for one of the days as an example? Sure. I mean, we'd be hard put to find any material object being manufactured in these days. Uh, day one uh, is about time. God set up day and night, alternating. He used light in that process, period of light, a period of darkness, alternating. That sets up time. That's not material. That's ordering our world. And, you know, in day three, when he talks about the plants sprouting, he doesn't say, it doesn't say God created plants. It says, let plants sprout. It sets up a system that's going to run. Uh, this is how our world is ordered. So those are some examples. Hmm. Excellent. Excellent. Okay. And uh, then uh, you uh, also, this transitions to Genesis 2, which is sometimes thought of as a separate creation narrative. Some people go so far, like if you're, you know, David Elliott Friedman, you know, you're going to say, well, this is actually a different author altogether that it's been stitched together by an editor. But one of the great advantages of your account is that you, you don't see discontinuity. You actually see um, 
what you call a sequel, um, that they're not, it's, this is not a replay of a previous day. This is, uh, subsequent. Can you, can you tease that out in the, this bridge between one and two? Sure. Uh, Genesis 2 4 is the place where we have the, a new literary introduction that, in, that gives us entry into this new section. Lots of people assume that, uh, that Genesis 2 is, is recapitulating day six. And that's when you get, oh, these are different viewpoints of day six. But that assumes that it does deal with day six, and I'm not sure that it does. Again, those literary introductions, like the one we find in 2 4, occur 10 other times throughout Genesis. And mostly they introduce a sequel, something that comes after what was told already. And so in Genesis 1, I see the idea that God is establishing the cosmos as sacred space to work for people. And in Genesis 2, God is setting up people to work in sacred space. And so you have the sacred space and uh, the role of people in each one, but they're kind of moving different directions. But they are um, they're very much complementary. And how does uh, you you do a very close analysis of the uh, the word the words for Adam and for woman? And can you talk a little bit about that and how that affects your reading of the chapter and and their function in the narrative? Sure. Um, the word Adam is a Hebrew word. Eve is the Hebrew word Chava, and that also is a Hebrew word. Um, Hebrew wasn't invented as a language until the middle of the second millennium, about the time of Moses or the judges period. Um, And so uh, Adam didn't call Eve Eve, and Eve didn't call Adam Adam. They weren't speaking Hebrew. Um, And so Adam means mankind, so we've got humankind. So we've got humanity speaking to life. Chava means life. Um, So the, uh, the idea that these are um, their historical names is already problematic. Uh, secondly, although I do believe they're historical people, um, but secondly, the uh, throughout most of Genesis two and three, uh, Hebrew has a definite article on the word Adam. When there's a definite article on it, that means it's not a personal name. If it's not a personal name, then what is it? I mean, by the time you get to the genealogies, Adam is a personal name. But in Genesis 2 and 3, with a definite article, it's talking about something that's more uh, referring to humanity in general, humankind. Hum- and so in that sense, it's, uh, I, would, I use the term archetypal, uh, that it's embodying in one sense all of humanity. So how do you differentiate between the archetypal and the historical? Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, I thought I... Unhooked all the phones. Okay. Uh, could you hear my phone ringing? Yes. Darn. Huh. Uh, I forgot about this phone. Okay. Let me unhook it. It's okay. Yeah. Okay, we'll have to pick up with that question again. Okay. Sorry. Okay, sure, no problem. Um, We'll just stitch it together. So how do you differentiate between the the historical and the archetypal, and how do they they function here? 
Okay. Uh, historical, um, basically what I'm saying is that I believe Adam and Eve are real people in a real past, and therefore that they truly existed. Um, but at the same time, that doesn't mean that they are functioning as individuals in the literature of the text at every point. For example, um, Paul will talk about Adam and talks about him as the representative of all humankind. That's archetypal. Okay, Adam is an individual, but Paul is more interested in Adam as an archetype, as representative of all humanity. Um, you can be both. That's not a problem. But in, the, in any given piece of literature, it might be treating, um, be treating the individual as an individual. What happens to that individual is unique to that individual. Or it might be treating him as an archetype, in which case what happens to that archetype is true of all of us. So that's the distinction I'm trying to draw. Uh, and you go so far uh, later in the book to even talk about um, that as an archetype, he doesn't. It doesn't need to. It doesn't need to suggest that Adam was in fact the only individual living at that time. He just becomes an archetype for uh, uh, God's articulation. Is that is that right? How how do you express it? Okay. Um. Well, when I deal with Adam, then, I'm asking several different questions about Adam. Uh, I'm asking a question, um, is he portrayed as a, a real person in a real past? My answer is yes. Uh, is he portrayed as the one through whom sin came? My answer is yes. Is he portrayed as the first of the biological species? My answer is no. Okay, now part of that answer comes just with the idea that um, Israel is not really thinking biology or genetics or anthropology or things of that sort. Uh, but beyond that, I ask the question, does the Bible really present him that way? Uh, and my answer is no, it doesn't. Uh, in Genesis 1, it doesn't mention that there are only two people. It doesn't mention Adam and Eve. Genesis 1 is humanity. And so the idea that God may have created a population uh, through whatever means he used. Genesis 1 doesn't talk about means or instrument or anything of that sort. And so in that sense, Genesis 1 doesn't specify a single pair. And if Genesis 2 is a sequel, not recapitulating Genesis 1, then in Genesis 2... Uh, we shouldn't think that Adam and Eve are now the people described on day six. Um, they may be among those people or something of that sort, but this is this would be a sequel account. And then we have to ask the question, then, what is the significance of Adam and Eve? If it doesn't present them as necessarily the first of the biological species, then they must have some kind of importance, and we have to account for Genesis 2. Mm -hmm. Information in the biblical text suggests that there are other people. Again, the classic, Cain finds a wife. But beyond that, Cain's afraid when God drives him away that everybody he finds will kill him. Who's this everybody? Um, and uh, he builds a city. You can't just build a city for yourself. Now, people have tried to answer those by saying that Adam and Eve are having loads and loads and loads and loads of kids, and those are having loads and loads and loads of kids, and so there's already a population. 
but you're reading something into the Bible that isn't there, okay, when you come up with that answer. Okay. So those are reasons why I would say the text does not present Adam and Eve as the, the only two or the first of the biological species. Um, there's evidence that the Bible is thinking differently than that. And so I don't start with that as an assumption. Right. And so uh, going, this connects back to your notion of the sequel. Um, and I thought it might be good to just talk about that for another minute. Um, and that ties into the, the number of uh, introductory statements. This is the account, or is it Toledot? Toledot. Toledot. And that it's used a number of times in Genesis, and each time it suggests that uh, there is this sequel pattern. And so one of the strengths of, I think, your interpretation here is that it's looking at the pattern that exists much later in Genesis um, and then showing how that that bridge can even exist between one and two. Is that right? Yes. Uh, there are two different ways that those literary introductions work. I labeled them sequel, which is the one we've been talking about. The other alternative is recursion. Uh, recursion is when, for instance, the text of Genesis will will track with Ishmael for a little bit, and then it'll come back and track Isaac. It's not recapitulation. It's not retelling Ishmael's story, okay? But it's coming back to tell a parallel story instead of a sequel, okay? So I call that recursion. Uh, so there, whenever you've got brothers involved in Genesis, you've got recursion. All the rest are sequels. None of them are recapitulation. And so in that sense, I would say Genesis itself suggests to us that once we have that literary introduction in Genesis 2-4, we should be thinking sequel. Hmm. Okay. Makes me wonder what's wrong with brothers. <laughs> yeah. Well, Has to be done again? Yeah, yeah well, the, the, the method in Genesis is to follow the line that you're not going to follow first. That's Ishmael, that's Esau. Ah. Follow that first and kind of drop it then at a certain point. Now come back and get the line it really wants to follow. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. Um, great. Well, uh, also, let's move on to talk about um, forming from the dust and building from the rib. I think because this is not something we, we hear this, uh, that Eve was taken from the rib of Adam. And you think that's not getting it quite right. So wh- why do you think that? And, and what does this mean for us? Okay. Um, you know, when we ask the question, um, why do we translate that word rib? Uh, you know, of course, most people just say, well, they just did. People translated it who knew what they were talking about, whatever. Uh, but the way we know how words mean in Hebrew is to see how they are used. And therefore, when we want to, to clarify or examine uh, the meaning of a Hebrew word, what we do is we look at all the other places where it's used. Uh, that word translated rib is never used anatomically ever in the Old Testament, except here. And therefore, we don't have other references to go on. When we look at the other references, we find that they're typically either architectural or locational. So it might talk about the north side and the south side or the, uh, the this part or that part. Um, and it typically means a side, not just like a rib. And we can see that even in Adam's response to Eve, where he says, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, that he recognizes it's not just a rib bone. And that gives us our first indication, and the rest of the use of the word fills this in, that we're talking about God cut Adam in half. He took one of his sides. 
uh, and built it into Eve. And so uh, the the use of the term rib, um, again, has has its own history, which we can't get into right now. But even in the earliest translations of the Bible, uh, they were using terms that also that meant side. And so to that extent, we uh, have no reason to think of this as a rib. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, of course, cutting somebody in half is a fairly significant um, activity. We attended to think that since Adam was in a deep sleep, that that must be some kind of uh, divine anesthesia. But of course, the Israelites don't know anything about anesthesia or surgery of that sort. They wouldn't think in those terms. And we find that that term for Adam's deep sleep is also used to pertain to a visionary experience. And so that's the option that I go with, that Adam is being put into a deep sleep to be shown something in a vision. And in his vision, he seems, sees himself cut in half and the other half being built into the woman. Then when God brings the woman to Adam, he says, oh, okay, now I know what this is. This is just like me. This is my other half. And so it tells him something about the nature of woman. Uh, he did not find a, an ally among the animals. But now this can be his ally because she is the other half of him. Right. And this seems to have significant implications for uh, the interpretation of the role of male and female. In a, a, that, he, that the female is not just a rib, a, a small piece of the man, but literally half. Or, right. And, or, and the female is not just another creature like the animals were. Um, so we can talk, if we're going to talk philosophy, we could talk about ontology. Uh, she is his ontological equal, equal in essence and in nature, uh, which the animals are not. And that's the very point being made. Mm-hmm. It's too bad that translators miss this. Yeah. Um, are there any uh, translations that actually get it right? Uh, I really haven't done a full study of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, I... Yeah, I can take you back to the ancient translations, uh, the Septuagint and the Targums and the Vulgate, and they're using um, ambiguous language at best. Um, the rabbis were arguing about this back in the 2nd, 3rd, 4th centuries A.D., um, some of them contending it should be side. Um, why we finally ended up with rib, I'm not sure. <laughs> um, to, uh, before we get into uh, the this question of the fall. I wonder if you could talk about two Jewish concepts that get applied in these uh, first two chapters of Genesis, and that is um, how you use uh, the notion of Melchizedek as an example of a kind of archetype and how it helps us with um, understanding Adam's role in Genesis, that here's a parallel that helps to illuminate his function, um, and also the notion of the temple and whether or not the creation account actually, uh, how, how does that uh, pertain to the, the building of the temple? Is it some uh, meant to be some parallel? Um, how do those two Jewish concepts here um, uh, get folded into the reading? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, with Melchizedek, uh, we find that the author of Hebrews is not just using Genesis and not just using Psalms, to build his profile of Melchizedek. The author of Hebrews is also digging deeply in the intertestamental literature. Uh, there's a there's a significant development of Melchizedek as a character in the Hellenistic literature of the intertestamental period. 
And the author of Hebrews knows it well, and he expects his audience knows it well. And so he's using Melchizedek not just as the historical guy you know from Genesis, but also as the developed character, the literary theological character known in the ancient, I'm sorry, the uh, intertestamental literature. Uh, And so in that sense, it shows that Melchizedek, used by the author of Hebrews, is a combination of a historical, a literary, and a theological character. And my point is that, that Adam is treated in much the same way by Paul. There's also been a lot of development about Adam in the intertestamental period, and Paul is using him as uh, interacting with his audience based on what they know about Adam as, it, as he has developed uh, as a literary, theological, and historical character in the intertestamental period. So that's about the Melchizedek connection. With regard to the temple, um, the idea that, I mean, a temple defines, no, uh, delineates sacred space. It's not that God comes into a space that is already sacred. God's presence is what makes it sacred. And so when God determines to inhabit some, some point on, on earth, that creates sacred space. And a temple is, uh, can be built there in order to show the, the limits and the boundaries. Um, what I believe about Genesis 1 is that God is uh, taking the cosmos and making it sacred space. Now, in Genesis 1, it doesn't tell us where the center of that sacred space is. We learn that in Genesis 2, where the Garden of Eden is the center of sacred space. But God's presence there is what makes it sacred. So that's the temple idea, uh, that the cosmos has taken on a sacred quality by God's design and by God's action. Okay. Um, so uh, in uh, later, uh, when you're talking about the account of the fall, uh, this is when you bring in a lot of the comparative literature of the uh, of the ancient Near East to um, to talk about parallel um, stories and not only to emphasize commonality but also distinctiveness of the biblical story. And in particular, you talk about the Gilgamesh epic. Can you talk about um, uh, how the two accounts are similar and how they're very different? in terms of uh, this notion of the fall and the relationship to God. The Gilgamesh epic is the most well-known piece of literature in the ancient world. We know that from the hundreds of fragments of it that have been found in a wide variety of places, including, by the way, a fragment that's found in Megiddo uh, in the Judges period. So we know that the Israelites were also familiar with the Gilgamesh epic. The Gilgamesh epic is a a long account uh, that has to do with his search for immortality, his exploits and adventures. Uh, Eventually, he meets the person who survived the flood, and we've got a flood account there. And so there there are a wide variety of um, topics that are addressed in the Gilgamesh epic. Uh, Because the Gilgamesh epic is such a montage of ideas, and because it was so well known in the ancient world, Uh, we can look to it 
to help us understand some of the ways that ancient Babylonians would have thought about uh, the world around them and about important issues. Um, again, we call the, the Epic of Gilgamesh, we might call it legend, we might call it myth, it has some of each in it. Um, and But when they heard legend or myth, I mean, legend and myth aren't things that for them are make-believe fiction. Now, rather, their mythology is uh, expressing the deepest truth that they know. So the Gilgamesh epic is a great place for us to uh, see the ancient world and how it works and how people think. And that's what we would go to it for. Now, in in the process, we see some comparisons with the book of Genesis. Uh, Those comparisons are sometimes um, very close. Uh, You know, Gilgamesh is given a plant that will give him immortality, or at least rejuvenation, um, you know, constant youth. And it's a serpent that takes it away from him. You know, those, those are interesting. Um, maybe they're just coincidental. Um, so uh, those kinds of things, and I've got a chart about them in the book just to look at some of them, and we evaluate the similarities and differences. Of course, the Bible is very different in, in how it treats those things, but the Gilgamesh epic can just give us a window into the ancient world and how people thought about certain issues that also surface in the book of Genesis. Okay. And in the, in the last third of your book, you, um, you turn to the New Testament um, in some ways as a confirmation of your theory that really what's important in Genesis is our functions, uh, not material creation, and also that uh, Adam... And Eve can serve as archetypes, not as uh, these specifically biological, um, you know, in their biological uh, aspect. Um, but you you turn to the New Testament as a way of confirming that they themselves shared um, that perspective, and that's how they uh, reference Adam and Eve, uh, and and uh, specifically Saint Paul. Um, can you talk a little bit about uh, how Saint Paul? uses that, and, and also about the cameo that uh, the uh, New Testament scholar N.T. Wright makes in your book? Sure. Um, well, certainly Paul uh, considers Adam to be a real person in a real past, as do I. Um, but Paul is often using Adam in literary theological ways, uh, and therefore archetypal ways. That is, that's how Paul is using this real person in the real past to make theological kinds of statements that associate Adam with all of us. That's the archetypal element. So again, what I've tried to demonstrate is that Paul's really not talking about biology or how um, biological origins took place. He's much more interested in sin and how sin developed, and, uh, and he uses Adam archetypally in that regard. So to that extent, um, I think that the New Testament likewise uh, makes a, I call it unbundling, unbundling the, the sin theological issue on the one hand from the biological human origins issue on the other hand. And the Bible's not addressing biological human origins, it's addressing the sin issue. Um, but of course, when it came to New Testament, 
Um, no one would really want to hear me talking about how we should interpret Paul differently than what has traditionally been done. My training is not in New Testament. My expertise is not in New Testament. And why would anybody believe me? And therefore, I wanted to get a bona fide New Testament scholar uh, to, uh, to uh, make a contribution in the New Testament material. And, of course, I was very happy that N.T. Wright um, decided to, that he would be willing to do that. Uh, he's a professor of New Testament at St. Andrews University uh, and, um, and of course, well-known for his writings and well-respected. So I, I benefited from his willingness to write the New Testament part and unwrap Paul for us in much more detail than what I could have done. Excellent. 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 Well, um, since you're, uh, I wanted to ask before we end, um, uh, that since your book was published, uh, the publication Books and Culture uh, has had a uh, two rounds of uh, articles about the historical Adam with, I think, eight contributors in each round. Yes. And so uh, what, what exactly has unfolded in this debate and where are the sticking points that have kind of emerged uh, from this conversation? Because you contributed two articles to this conversation, and it seems to me that there, uh, you know, these are excellent uh, you're making very excellent points about our interpretive framework that we need to apply to, you know, these ancient texts. But uh, uh, where where are the sticking points for most people? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the the eight contributors to the roundtable, uh, a number of them um, really felt no need to affirm a historical atom. Others of us did. Um, and so we had differences of opinion there. Of course, we were asked to write very briefly, and so we only get a glimpse of what's going on there. But historical Adam is one of the big pieces, not only historical Adam with regard to biological human origins, but also historical Adam with regard to the fall. Uh, and several of the contributors felt that you really didn't need an individual historical Adam in order to retain a concept of the fall. Some of them, it sounded like, even would be willing to overhaul our understanding of original sin and sin nature and all of those sorts of things. So uh, different people have different issues that they're working with. Again, we have two very different issues going on when we're talking about biology on the one hand and theology regarding sin and the fall on the other hand. But both of them all kind of mingle together in this in this issue. Uh, obviously, uh, we have differences with regard to hermeneutics. Uh, how we interpret scripture, uh, the extent to which we use ancient Near Eastern literature, and how we use that ancient Near Eastern literature, the extent to which we consider the Bible to be uh, authoritative and how that authority works. Uh, some of the contributors felt free to say that the Bible is really a lot like ancient mythology, and they felt pretty free to dismiss some of it. Others of us did not feel comfortable with all of that. Um, you know, some of it comes down into biblical interpretation. We haven't talked yet about dust, and I don't know if you want to get into that or not. Uh, we talked about rib, but we didn't talk about dust. Um, and sure. well, by way of closing, why don't why don't you talk about that and how how your interpretation of that is maybe different from these some of these others? Sure. Um, you know, I read the text and I I take the idea that people were made from dust. And I say, okay, is that only true of Adam or is it true of all of us? 
my contention is, based on biblical statements in Psalms, in 1 Corinthians, that all of us are made from dust. And if all of us are made from dust, then that's not a statement of biological human origins. As a result, I kind of keep that text in place. I just give it a different interpretation that is connected to the archetypal Adam. Um, I find the archetypal idea prominent in the ancient Near Eastern accounts of human origins. They always uh, treat humanity archetypally. They deal with particular humans as archetypes. And when they talk about ingredients, which they do often, uh, those ingredients are archetypal, whether it's the blood of a god or the spit of a god or the tears of a god. Uh, those have to do with human nature, not with biology or something of that sort. It's like I was reading on a website earlier today when someone asked a second grader, what are moms made of? And it was angel wings and you know things of that sort. Uh, those are archetypal in nature. That's an, He's not making a biological statement. And so uh, I think that how we treat the text is different between those those people in the, the round table. Um, you know, I try to get back and understand the text as an ancient text, but to retain it as uh, authoritative and as scripture. Excellent. Well, I've taken up a lot of your time. And I, I do appreciate it. At the New Books Network, we end with a traditional question, and that is, what are you working on now? Well, there are two main books that I'm working on now. Uh, one of them is an Old Testament theology. Uh, it's not going to be multi-volume huge. It's going to be you know pretty um, streamlined, uh, but an Old Testament theology that will combine history of religions with biblical theology. Uh, in trying to understand uh, how the Old Testament folks thought. Uh, so that's one book, uh, and I we are doing another one in the Lost World series, um, The Lost World of the Flood, which will cover Genesis 4 through 11. Uh, I'm partnering in that one with Tremper Longman, oh. so we'll, we'll be co-authoring it, mm-hmm. um, just like in Lost World of Scripture, where I did that with Brent Sandy. Um, but Lost World of the Flood uh, will kind of take us from Genesis 4 through 11, but with the main focus being on the flood. Excellent. Excellent. Well, um, thank you so much for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. Thanks. Good to be here. I've just been talking with John Walton, professor of Old Testament at Wheaton College. His book is The Lost World of Adam and Eve, Genesis 2 and 3, and the Human Origins Debate, published by IVP Academic. I hope you've enjoyed today's show, and I hope you'll join me for a future program. Thank you for listening and for your support of the New Books Network.